Welcome. This is the Way Home Podcast. A podcast built around conversations on church, community, and culture. And now, here's Dan Darling. Well, welcome to the fifth episode of the Way Home Podcast. Very excited about my guest today, Dr. John Dixon, an Australian speaker, author, and historian, a public advocate for the Christian faith. Dr. Dixon is co-director of the Center for Public Christianity in Australia. He's a pastor. He's a scholar. He's actually a musician as well. And we're going to have a fascinating discussion around his uh, latest book that was just released called A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, Inside History's Bestseller for Believers and Skeptics. And uh, I was very intrigued by Dr. Dixon's arguments here. and essentially encourages Christians to be less defensive about their faith and more offensive in telling the, the beautiful story of the Christian faith. And to skeptics, his approach is essentially, hey, what if Christianity was true? What then? And kind of unpacks that. And so we have some uh, very interesting uh, insights from him on what the church is like in Australia, and he also counsels even American pastors on how to think through doing ministry and and what we all perceive to be an increasingly post-Christian culture. So I encourage you to really listen to this podcast. Well, Dr. John Dixon, thank you for joining me today on the Way Home podcast. Great to be with you. I'm really excited about this new book of yours, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. And I just want to get started right in just talking to you about your background. You you say that you were a skeptic. You didn't grow up in a in a evangelical or religious home. Can you share a little bit about that and what kind of brought you to Christ? Sure. Well, Australia is very different from America. The, the church attendance rates in Australia are about 15% of Australians attend church once a month. Right, so it's very different, and that wow. includes all denominations, Roman wow. Catholic right through to Presbyterian. And so, uh, I was from a typical Australian household that never went to church. It was a loving, stable environment in many ways, um, but I never went to Sunday school, never attended a church service. We never said grace at the dinner table. It was a godless environment, even as I say, it was a it was a loving environment. And um, it was really through a teacher at my school who was a Christian and had a way of talking about faith that I found utterly compelling. And to cut a long story short, it was she who introduced me to the Gospels. I'd never read any of those biographies about Jesus. Uh, Of course, I knew the name Jesus and I'd Mm -hmm. met a few Christians, but I'd never looked at it for myself. And it was reading the Gospels over maybe a six-month period that I found myself as a 15- or 16-year-old, what I would describe as a fan of Jesus. Not yet a Christian, but a fan of Jesus. And uh, I I would defend him uh, to my friends at school. I would uh, try and promote him. And eventually, I I figured that I probably was a Christian after all, because uh, I certainly believed in his life and death and resurrection and all that that meant Mm -hmm. for me. You know, you grew up in and, of course, do ministry now 
in, in a context that's different from, from what many American Christians are used to, or at least have been used to, but may need to start getting used to, in that um, it's not a majority Christian country, you know, uh, it's it's very much different than what we would call here the Bible Belt, where it's it's kind of expected in certain places that you go to church. And so for you, being a, a minority in terms of your faith is, is probably something that you've been used to all along. How does that affect the way that you engage the gospel and do ministry? I think it uh, gets rid of any air of entitlement mm-hmm. that you might have if uh, if Christianity was the majority. It's it's very easy, I think, even in a faith like Christianity, which emphasizes humility and grace and generosity. It's easy to, when you're in the ascendancy, to actually be a little bit of a bully without meaning to be. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you're in a country where there's no way you could really be a bully because there's just not enough mm-hmm. uh, Christians to have the kind of clout that we might otherwise have, I think you just learn how to address other Australians in a way that doesn't assume that you have to listen to me, you have to follow my way. And so I, I guess there's a there's something of that early Christianity in mm. a in a country like Australia because you can't assume everyone agrees with you. Now, having said that, still a lot of Australians believe in God, and mm-hmm. a lot of Australians have a high view of Jesus. They're just not really sure about the uh, the institutions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've got to try work out generous ways of presenting uh, Christianity that answers their questions without any air of entitlement. I think, I think that's the thing that has marked the kind of Christianity that I, that I um, embraced as a 15- or 16-year-old. You lead an institution called the Center for Public Christianity in what is a, a post-Christian country, as we talked about. And so you are obviously always looking for on-ramps to talk to skeptics about the Christian faith. Do you find a general sort of hesitancy among people in Australia to even want to talk about it? Do they want to shut down the conversation? Or are there ways for you to engage in meaningful dialogue about about Christ? Well, yes and no. Um, it's certainly true that Australians are too distracted to really want to be talking about Christianity too much. And some of them think they're living on heaven on earth anyway, so why, why do mm-hmm. we need to be talking about heaven? <laughs> um, and And so... That is certainly true. But what we find is that, certainly with the work of the Center for Public Christianity, is that Christianity is still um, respected enough to be part of the conversation, but contested and controversial enough for it to be a little bit exciting for media outlets to have a Christian on a television program or a radio program along with an atheist, and uh, let them fight it out, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, with the sort of the contest of ideas. So we're, we're in this kind of perfect storm, it seems to me, of remaining credibility in the Christian faith in Australia, but also contestability. That means that Centre for Public Christianity is in the public square, in the secular media, all the time, in TV, radio, and print. And we've, what we've found is that the media, the secular media, isn't nearly as anti-Christian as it normally seems to a lot of Christians. They just don't really know Christianity and are, and are working off the caricatures that they're getting second or third hand. But when they actually meet 
Christians that are uh, certainly believing the Christian faith, but doing it in a way that's uh, generous, that adopts a, a sort of um, a comfortable stance, we find them incredibly open. So it's really mixed. I, I don't think being in a post-Christian society, if that's the right way to describe it, um, is all bad mm-hmm. for Christians because it actually creates more opportunities than in a Christian-dominant society. I think one of the most compelling parts of this book that you've you've written, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, and one that I really resonate with is you're encouraging Christians to move from a kind of defensive posture of apologetics, not saying apologetics, that's a good field, it's a good dis- discipline that Christians are pursuing, but kind of from a defensive posture into a an offensive posture, if you will, a joyful posture of just retelling the Christian story. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, you're certainly right that um, there is a tradition of Christians just trying their best to answer all the negative criticisms that are out there. And there are so many you could spend your full time just working out answers to the tricky questions. And in some ways, that's perfectly legitimate and important. After all, it's the Apostle Peter who says, always be prepared to give an answer. Um, but there's, a, there's, another, there's another approach, and you put your finger on it really well, by saying a sort of positive, front-footed explanation of how Christianity explains everything. And the, the goal of my doubter's guide to the Bible is to help the doubter, the skeptic, the person who isn't sure what to make of the Bible, see that the biblical narrative from creation, fall, redemption, new creation, so from Genesis to Revelation, actually explains so many of the deepest hunches we have about existence. It explains why we feel humanity is intrinsically important. Um, You certainly can't base that on atheist principles. If we're all ultimately an accident, there's no way you can treat every human being, regardless of their capacity, as inalienable uh, worth. Uh, But -hmm. you can if you believe that God has intended everyone. Um, Same with the idea of the fall. I think the fall, even though it gets a lot of bad press and people sometimes think, oh, you Christians, you bang on about sin too much, and there's a little bit of truth to that. But ultimately, the fall says that there's a, there's a brokenness in the world, and it runs through the human heart. And the sooner we understand that, accept that, the more real you can be in the world. I often think I would hate to believe the myth that I am good through and through and only getting better. Because I don't know how I could put up with all the counter-evidence on a daily basis Mm -hmm. that I'm not good through and through and getting better. And so the doctrine of the fall actually explains the world that I'm in. And then, of course, the longings that we all have. You see it in Hollywood films. You see it in all our best literature for redemption, for Mm. for things to be restored is right there at the heart of the Bible. That is so good. And, and, And I think what's so interesting, and you probably find this, you know, in your engagement is that... It seems that people who are antagonistic to Christianity are probably reacting not necessarily to the grand story of that Christianity tells, but what they think is Christianity. Maybe they've heard bits and pieces, you know, things here and there. And so, you know, to tell them, I'm not expecting you to believe this right now, but what if this was true? Then what? Yes. Is that, yes. Is that what you're getting at? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I do a little bit of the kind of 
defensive stuff throughout the book. You know, I, I do talk about history of Jesus. I talk about evidence for King David. And, you know, so there's a little bit of that. I can't help myself. My, my primary training is in ancient history. But, um, but generally what I'm trying to do is say, okay, let's, let's uh, not worry about the argumentative uh, you criticize and I defend. Well, let's just ask ourselves the question, what difference would it make if this story, which shaped Western culture, were actually true mm. and help people to sort of see the beauty and drama of the Christian narrative as the answer to our deepest questions of existence. One of the big objections that people have to the Bible, and it's just, you got to get it out there, it's the elephant in the room, is the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament and all the violence in the Old Testament, and the, you know, versus the kind of... Jesus, they, they think they see in the New Testament. How do you approach that when skeptics raise that? Well, yeah, there's a whole chapter in the book on this. Um, and I think it's one of the most difficult questions that we all face. And I think we have to concede up front that um, even you know, the thoughtful, committed Christian comes across the book of Joshua and uh, all the conquest in the mm -hmm. book of Joshua, and we feel a little bit bad. We, we don't know really what to do with it. Um, there are a few things, though, that are within the narrative itself that remind us that this isn't ethnic cleansing, which is often the claim. Richard mm -hmm. Dawkins, the famous atheist, says that this is ethnic cleansing on the part of Joshua. But the intriguing thing about the story of the book of Joshua is that it begins with two stories that, before you hear anything about warfare, two stories that tell you God is not playing favorites mm -hmm. in this story. The first is Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. The first story of the book is that she is welcomed by the God of Israel. She mm -hmm. is a righteous one. Now, why is that the first story in the, in the whole book of the conquest? I think it's there to remind us that there may be many other Rahabs we're not going to be told about in the story. We can expect God to be saving Canaanites left, right, and center. The second story is where Joshua meets the commander of the armies of the Lord just before he goes and takes Jericho. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord, this is this sort of majestic figure, says, neither. Mm. <laughs> now, that's extraordinary. Yeah. The ancient writer of Joshua is trying to make clear to any readers that whatever else this story means, and it is a violent warlike story, whatever else it means, it's got nothing to do with God playing favorites, nothing to do with ethnicity. So we've got to ask ourselves, what is it about? And it's the book of Deuteronomy that tells us that God is bringing his judgment on Canaan's sins, which had risen to such a level that the world is crying out for God of justice to do something. And he uses Israel, stubborn, stiff-necked Israel, which is what the Deuteronomy passage says, don't for a second think that I'm giving you this land because of your righteousness. You're a stiff-necked people, it says. God is just using Israel as a means of bringing his temporal judgment into the world. And anyone who has ever looked at our world and said, Lord, why don't you do something about you know, the Nazis? Why don't you do something about Pol Pot? Why don't you do something about this? Has the book of Joshua to look back on and see that there was a time in history, one time, when God brought his judgment in a terrible fashion, and then, thank God, he pressed the pause button. Interestingly, Israel didn't go on to take over Syria. They didn't conquer Egypt. They weren't meant to do that. They were only meant to take this one little strip of land 
as an, as an act of God's judgment on a particular people at a particular time to illustrate for all time that their judgment is real, but God has suspended judgment until the final day. That's, for me, how I understand the story within its own context. But obviously, the ultimate thing is every Christian has to read this story through the lens of Jesus Christ, because we learn in Jesus Christ that God does not want to bring judgment, Mm -hmm. would rather enter into the world and die on a cross and bear judgment himself than see anyone lost. So what, what you learn in the story of Rahab is actually the very heart of God to save the outsider. If you were to talk to a skeptic who was honestly, you know, seeking the truth, where would you have them start? With a gospel, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because although uh, the gospels assume a lot of the backstory, I think you can get enough of the backstory just by reading a gospel really carefully with a little bit of an aid. So I have for years always said to skeptical friends, just read a gospel. I tend to point them to Luke's gospel for various reasons, but I think you can't get around the person of Jesus. He's the center of the story. So you might as well start there and work backwards and forwards, but certainly a gospel because the the history is compelling. The teachings of Jesus are memorable and they influence Western culture so much. Our skeptical friends will recognize it, but ultimately it's the person at the heart of the gospels who I think is the best apologetic there is if that's the right word. He, yeah. he, is, he is the best thing Christians have going for them, let's put it that way. And, and I'm going to flip that question around and say, if you are talking to a, a Christian who has a skeptic who's a friend, and they've had good conversations, but they're just thinking and praying of, of what is the next thing I need to say to this person or resource to put in their hands, obviously your book would be a good start, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> but, but how would you counsel someone who has friends who are skeptics? Well, well you know, I mean, obviously, um, <laughs> I would recommend anything uh, that I've written, um, for the, you know, those books for the skeptics. But there are, there are wonderful authors out there that are, that are so worth reading. I, I think of Tim Keller, mm-hmm. I think of Don Carson, I think of Ravi Zacharias. Mm-hmm. These three American authors, I, I think, have um, made such a phenomenal contribution to the Christian conversation. The other thing I would say is, and I guess it's a shameless plug, the Center for Public Christianity mm-hmm. website is publicchristianity.org, is a free library of audio, video, and print on just about any question a skeptic could put to the Christian faith. Science, philosophy, history, environmentalism, ethics, arts, you name it. Uh, I really, you know, we've worked hard to make that a, a resource that you could send your skeptical friend to, and there won't be anything there that they would find embarrassing or, mm-hmm. uh, or put them off. And it seems one of the things that you're saying in your book and in your work is, would you counsel people who are trying to reach skeptic friends to stay in the conversation, stay in the relationships, uh, you know, keep those ties because you, know, you never know where those can lead, right? Oh, of course. And, you know, to pray for our loved ones who don't believe. I've seen many people I would never have imagined coming to faith who have come to faith eventually. Um, so we believe in a, a great God and I think praying for them, being their friend, 
being ready to answer their questions, being open about your faith, but never pushy. Mm-hmm. You know, there comes a point in a friendship, especially, or, or with a family member, where if you each time you sit down at the uh, dinner table, <laughs> you're trying to evangelize them, mm-hmm. they just don't want to have dinner with you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't serve anyone. So um, I just think it's important to be, of, you know, to do your best to speak about Jesus, but just to be willing to be more relaxed and leave it all in God's hands mm-hmm. while you concentrate on being gentle and respectful, which is what the Apostle Peter says in that famous passage about apologetics, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, but do this with gentleness and respect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think in the end, even if you don't have a clever answer to the tricky questions, if you give a gentle and respectful answer, you can still be pointing to the gospel, because ultimately the gospel is about the one who gave himself for us. So you can't promote that gospel in an arrogant know-it-all way. The only way to promote that gospel is to be like the one at the heart of the gospel. I guess the last question I have for you, and I really appreciate you joining me today. It's a really important discussion and really good resource. I'm, I'm really encouraging people to get your book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. If you were talking to pastors, church leaders, I'm thinking of people who do campus ministry uh, among students, what is uh, one piece of counsel and advice you'd have them for delivering a gospel message in an increasingly skeptical, secular age in a way that will invite people to investigate uh, the Christian story? Well, in some ways, my answer takes us back to the first thing we talked about, that air of entitlement. It seems to me, as the world becomes more post-Christian, that whenever our friends who don't believe hear Christians talk with entitlement, like, you know, you have to listen to us, like, this is our nation, not yours. That sort of, that tone, even though we Mm -hmm. never actually put it like that, that tone, when people who don't believe hear that, when they pick up on that, they they just shut their ears and eyes to the whole thing. But when you get up and you address them, hey, look, I, you know, I've got no more rights than, than you do, but Here's what I think changes the world. Can I tell you about it? It's that gentleness and respect, again, that Peter talks mm-hmm. about. I think that whatever your tricky answers to difficult questions might be, the most important thing is the stance, giving up entitlement and just uh, conveying the grace, humility and gentleness that Jesus displayed in the cross. Well, thank you, Dr. John Dixon. Really appreciate you joining me on the Way Home podcast. Appreciate your work and your ministry. Thank you so much, Dan. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. John Dixon, an Australian speaker and author and historian for the Center for Public Christianity. I encourage you to get his fascinating new book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, a great book that will help not just doubters who are searching for the truth, but also followers of Christ who want to reach uh, an increasingly post-Christian culture. We'll put all that information for you on the show notes, on the podcast page, on my website, danieldarling.com. encourage you to go there. And also check out previous podcasts and interviews we've done. You can also subscribe to this podcast in iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn and other places like that. But go to danieldarling.com and click on the podcast page. But as for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. You've been listening to The Way Home Podcast. For show notes, more information about Dan or the ERLC, please visit danieldarling.com. 
This episode has been brought to you by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thanks for listening.